The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The Astronomy Podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. Oh, that's us. Hi, I'm Dr. Moya McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist, a folklorist, and a friend to the universe. I am always looking out for it. I've got its back. Yeah, yeah. you do. I have mm-hmm. noticed that about you, going to the universe's restaurant parties. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Kryn Caputo, writer, fun person, um, another friend to the universe. And we are joined this week by a very special guest. She is the author of the upcoming release, The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts, which is out this week. Uh, So you can get a copy wherever books are sold. So please welcome Lauren Grush. Yay, I'm so happy to be here. Yay. Thanks for joining us. We're really happy to have you. I mean, Corinne, we have to explain our backstory, right? I know. (laughs) I've dropped it before in the pod um, that I used to host a astronaut game show, (laughs) and Lauren was my amazing co-host. I played a very strange billionaire type person, although I only played myself. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I really was not in a character at all, but... (laughs) But Lauren was very good at balancing out a lot of that with real facts about science. I was the scientist or the pretending to be a scientist role. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I would list out all these dangerous facts about going to Mars or yes. the moon <laughs> in yes. a very long monologue that made everyone very uh, scared to go to space. Yeah. As they should be. Yes. It's terrifying. It was a needed dose to ground us, I think. <laughs> It's funny, I, you know, I'll tell people those those are very real facts, you know, you, you, when it comes to yes. you know, the radiation environment or the uh, risk of crashing into the surface. And I'll tell that to people and they're actually quite surprised at how difficult yes. it would be to live there. Yeah, I think for Mars especially, people are like, no, we're like days away from doing that. No, it's kind of like, well, not. I don't know. <laughs> It'll be the <laughs> hardest undertaking humanity has ever achieved. <laughs> I yeah. hate Elon Musk so much. That oh, is his yeah. fault. He's definitely spreading the wrong rumors about how easy this can be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I I like that you always had those facts. Uh, I was on a a couple episodes. I was at a couple of shows Mm -hmm. for astronaut training. Uh, That's how I met Corinne. But I I didn't know what the origin of the show was. Like, how how did you two meet and, and make astronaut training? I brought the show to Caveat, which who hosted it, and then they introduced me to Lauren. And I I am a journalist, but also a recovering theater kid. So <laughs> they, I think it was just like a match made in heaven because you know I was able to to 
reach really deep into the past and to pull out my <laughs> performance skills. <laughs> yeah, the comeback that our inner children dream of. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Take that theater teacher who was so mean yeah. to me. <laughs> I never had a theater teacher who liked me. I think I, I'm not a character actor. And there was always a theater teacher who was like, go harder, like do the full thing. And I was like, I just like want to be here. I don't really want to like <laughs> do the character. <laughs> You're there for vibes. Yeah. Yeah, and that that wasn't a thing yet. (laughs) Um, But we are in a very cool space today. Lauren, can you tell us where we are? Yes. We're recording? We're recording from Mission Control. (laughs) We got exclusive access today. (laughs) What an honor. Um, Where, what Mission Control exactly? Like, NASA has many uh, outposts and positions. So where is this one located? I think for this... uh, podcast recording we should be in nasa's johnson space center mission control yes uh, as that would be i mean i'm sure they are there's plenty of security in the way that would actually <laughs> prevent us from getting in there but oh no we got all the clearances don't yeah, you we worry we're clearance. very important <laughs> podcast people they said oh you guys come right in yeah the pale blue pod we love you yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> um but i want to talk lauren about your incredible book that comes out yes. this week um it's called the six the untold story of our female astronauts, which I did not know about. I knew about Sally Ride, but I did not know about the other five, which I think makes a lot of sense. I, that was the mm-hmm. impetus for writing the book. And, and, and truthfully, I was the same. I didn't really know much beyond Sally Ride either. It was only when I started digging into the into her history, I, I realized there was a group of six of them, and it easily could have been one of them, uh, any other of them, to be the first American woman in space. Yeah, I think that was, that's so cool about the book. I think that a lot of NASA stuff is just like how there was, um, you know, there were many men before this who, like, kind of died or sacrificed or something for it. And we remember the person who made it there, and we're not thinking about, like, the full scope of everyone involved. Um, but I'm curious how you first learned about the other five women. Yeah, so my go-to story has been, you know, I've been reporting on space for about a decade now, nearly a decade. And uh, when I first started, I was very overwhelmed. I thought because that I grew up in like a space household, my parents worked for NASA growing up. Uh, you know, I thought, oh, I've got this. I know everything there is to know about the space beat. Could not have been further from the truth. <laughs> and I was just also very intimidated. I I felt like anytime I would go to a space event, I was maybe one of a handful of women in a sea of men. And it took a lot of energy when I would go to say a launch at Kennedy Space Center, not to just like run out the door and go back to my hotel. So I have always been very keenly aware of just, you know, the male dominated industry that I report upon. And also the press corps has been dominantly male too. Now it's definitely, I know so many great women reporting on space. In fact, I consider them all some of my best friends and I'm so lucky to know them. Uh, but we also do kind of cling to each other <laughs> uh, in in times where we are surrounded by mostly men. And so that just got me thinking about, you know, people in the space industry and the women who came first. So that just kind of prompted me to look back. And that's how I discovered uh, these first six women. And I just also thought, oh, no one had actually written a book about the six of them as a group before. And I thought that would be a great opportunity. Yeah, it feels like a book that I would have guessed exists. And I'm really glad you created it because it is a huge like gap in, in the market. There are definitely stories about them singularly, you know, uh, 
many of the women have written their own books. There's a great biography by Lynn Schur about Sally Ride, but I just thought them as a group, I think what I thought the group dynamics would be great to examine. And it was really fun. And also each of their flights are just so interesting. So it really kind of wrote itself in a way because I thought it just had a very natural structure to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love when authors say that, because for me, that's one of the hardest things to decide when it comes to a book. So can you tell us a bit more about the the bounds of this? Like, what did you decide to include and exclude? And like, why? So the what I decided to exclude was quite a fair a bit, because in reality, this is a biography. It's six biographies in one. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's 400 pages. Yeah, it's, yeah. 400 it's a pages. big boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, these women are extremely accomplished. Uh, yeah. So being able to include every single thing that they've done was just impossible. So essentially what I did include was I tried to give a snapshot of, you know, where they were when they first learned about the astronaut selection process. I also went into the history of women trying to fly to space. I believe, you know, that's famously known as the Mercury 13. Obviously there's Mm -hmm. some controversy over that name. That's not what they refer to themselves as, but we know them as the women who passed the same tests as the Mercury 7, and they very much wanted to keep training for space, but were ultimately denied that opportunity. And then I took us through the women's selection uh, process, which I think is just a fun chapter, just because I thought I had an understanding of what goes into astronaut selection, and I definitely did not. Yeah, it's intense. (laughs) And it's definitely very intense, and also very subjective and you know uh there yeah. as yeah. with any selection committee uh where you're choosing humans yes to, to do a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes and yeah maybe i i maybe thought there was like some algorithm that they you know put into their calendar and it popped out oh these candidates you know should be the ones selected and obviously that's not how it works and then take them tr- through training um their experiences waiting for their assignments the the selection of sally which is such a big moment for the astronaut corps and for the entire country. And then I do, I dedicate um, a chapter to each of their flights leading up to the Challenger explosion, which uh, kind of bookends the book. Uh, Mm. And I tried to not leave it on such a tragic note. So there is an epilogue that goes into all of the amazing things that they've done since, but it really mostly focused on their inaugural space flights um, just because Otherwise, I would have to write six books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, would that be the worst thing? <laughs> yeah, if they want to keep uh, re-upping those, I'd be happy to Make do it. Make it a series. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> Did you ask about what surprised you most in the research? Because I'm sure you yeah, had Yeah, I do want to hear that. Yeah, learn, learn a lot for this book. Yeah, so back to what I was saying, I was definitely surprised at the selection both of the astronauts and of Sally, as you'll learn, a lot of it really came down to one man's decision, George Abbey, who was the director of flight operations at the time. And he was just very um, a mysterious man, a mysterious figure among the astronauts. And so everyone was always kind of trying to guess or discern how he was making these decisions. And he just never really uh, opened up about it that much. And even when I spoke to him, he was not very... uh, not very talkative. I mean, he was he, he just kind of said, oh, well, I just, you know, I picked people who had the right requirements for the mission. And I'm, that's it. <laughs> I was like, all right, 
well, that does make sense. That's so funny. <laughs> there might have been more than six, though. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then also, I think I kind of went in thinking that, oh, these women were going to be this tight-knit group and they were going to be best friends and Obviously, as a woman myself, I should know that that's obviously not, <laughs> uh, not the case. They, you know, you are closer with some people than you are others. Everyone has their own different and unique personalities. And I also enjoyed how that reflected in how they handled certain situations. So, for instance, there's a great scene about the makeup kit that uh, <laughs> NASA, NASA created for the astronauts. And... Uh, a lot of people react as we are now. We're, we're just kind of shaking our heads. But I also thought about it, too. It's like these people are public figures. And I know mm -hmm. that whenever I go on TV or if I want to present myself, I wear makeup. And so uh, some of them weren't so opposed to the idea of taking makeup to spaces because just because so many cameras were on them all the time. And so yeah. mm -hmm. obviously, you know, we all have different reactions to these things. And so that was that was really neat to to write about. And yeah. you presented it really well. Thank uh, you. I think. Yeah, I love the tone of the book. I think it's one of those rare nonfiction books that you kind of feel like you're watching something ha unfold and happen and not just like kind of bored facts or <laughs> going on. And I think NASA, a lot of NASA content um, is just inherently interesting to me, at least. I'll also give credit to the women themselves and their space flights. Like I was saying, each of their flights was just so different and had something unique about it. I mean, Judy's first flight before the, the Challenger accident, I mean, they had this insane abort that they um, had to deal with. And it was the first time mm -hmm. they'd had an abort on the launch pad. And so just kind of chronicling that moment was just so fascinating to write about. And then, some, you know, Kathy Sullivan, she was the first American woman to do a spacewalk. You then Anna came next and she's the first mother to fly. You know, it's just mm -hmm. we, they each were kind of checking these like major historical milestones off with each of their flights. And so I, there was just no way to get bored because if I wanted to turn away from Anna's flight, I could turn to Shannon's flight or I could turn to Judy's flight. You know, it was just each one had such a unique story to tell. Yeah, I had never thought about I in the beginning of your book when you first mentioned that Anna was the first like mother to fly. I'd never thought about that ever or just like if any astronaut was a parent or not. And I was just like floored and oh my God, how cool. Yeah, I think it was interesting because I, I opened the book with her and how she's about eight months pregnant and she's overseeing the flight. She's actually the lead Cape Crusader, which is a term that astronauts give themselves when they are support personnel for uh, flights. So she worked a lot with Sally leading up to her first flight. And just the idea that she was, you know, eight months pregnant watching over the cockpit. I just thought that was such a beautiful scene to open the book with. And um, I remember I sent that to someone who is a big, you know, space buff. And he was just saying to me, it's wild that they let her do that. You know, that I don't I don't that think they let her sit in a chair. Well, <laughs> I think they're just so NASA's so safety conscious. You know, I don't think a pregnant woman would be able to do that for uh, I think anymore. that's why I had never thought about it. I had just decided in my head that like that would never happen. Right, right. I would be so righteously angry in in all of their shoes at different points in this book. I had to put it down several times because I was fuming on their <laughs> I behalf. I have heard that, yes. <laughs> and even that, like people thinking that 
this this Cape Crusader job can't be done by a pregnant person is just wild to me. Right. Um, and, yeah. it, and it wasn't just, I mean, obviously they were allowed to do it back then. I think they just weren't sure how to handle those things. But whenever yeah. they did find out some of the women were pregnant, they were immediately banned from flying the yeah. T-38 jets that they were supposed to fly. And they, they were, had been flying just fine, like a few days ago. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and what's great is the women have said that they tell their children that they, they were flying in the, the jets, you know, well before they were born. <laughs> I think it's good. It's funny. That should count towards their experience hours if they ever want to go into space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're like, I have over a hundred hours of flight time and <laughs> I have dozens of neonatal flight time. Yeah. <laughs> How did you go about the research of this book? You mentioned like interviewing George George Abbey. Yes. That's sweet. Yes. What was that like? It feels like so much more um, like Lauren is a journalist, does research interviews all the time, but this feels like it just encompasses obviously way more decades, way more people than I imagine some of the research you've done before. This was actually extremely intimidating when I first started. I thought, oh, yes, I write articles for a living. It should be no problem. But no, you're exactly right. It's more of a history book and required a lot more archival work and just kind of digging into the depths of the Internet and look under, you know, looking under rocks for things that you need or didn't know that you needed. And also, I picked the hardest time to do this. It was during the COVID pandemic, which everyone was proclaiming, oh, it's the time to write your novel. No, it was not the oh, time to write your novel. Um, because everything was closed. All the archives were shut down. Mm -hmm. So I really had to get creative and find things online as much as I possible. I did everything remotely. Um, I, I give a shout out to my guy, Paul. Don't know his last name, but uh, he was at the... <laughs> He was at the New York Public Library and he kind of walked me through like the Byzantine archival system that they have. You know, it's just and, and so I was able to kind of use that to kind of look up um, newspapers, magazines, all sorts of literature from the 70s and the 80s that I would not have been able to find otherwise. So that was incredibly helpful. Um, I also FOIA'd material. So FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act, which oh, uh, cool. is a journalist's uh, powerful tool. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, you're able to request documents or media from the government uh, or any communications between government and, and private sources. So that's how I was able to get my hands on Sally's press conference, which I have video of. And oh, my God, it's just the cringiest thing you could possibly imagine. <laughs> I love that I have the video because I can see her facial expression yes, each time yeah. she... Um, answers a terrible question. So that is a special treat for me. <laughs> How was she at maintaining composure under the ridiculous questions? Um, she was phenomenal. And Great. I don't think wow. I would have been as good. I mean, basically, she's the question that gets most of the attention during her press conferences. You know, that someone asked her if she wept during the simulations where something went wrong. And she just kind of laughs and defers. But there's another question that I thought was equally terrible, and she handled it quite well. It was somebody asked her, you know, oh, you used to be a tennis player, but you left because you didn't think you were good enough to go pro. Would you have similarly left the astronaut corps if you hadn't been selected to be the first <laughs> Woman. Oh my god. Oh my god. I quit karate because I knew I wasn't good at this. Like it doesn't mean I can't do anything else. But once a quitter, always a quitter. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. you're doomed for life now, Corinne. I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> that is so frustrating and so impressive. I'm 
remembering in the astronaut training show, we had a segment where we had our astronaut guests do a press conference. Yes, that and was my favorite section. But It was my favorite bit, too. Yeah. And I think they were given the microphone. They had to stand at the front of the stage, but they couldn't see the... They were apologizing for something. <laughs> and there was something on the screen behind them that was like, you ate spaghetti with your feet or something. Yes. And they had to just apologize for it, maintain composure the whole time. I think Um, I repressed these memories because it's coming back now as you describe it. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure that there was similar um, press training, not to this extent for astronauts, but like there is a bit of like, yeah, you're going to have to do stuff, you know, keep a straight face in front of in front of the press. Yeah. One of the things I've been saying a lot is. Obviously, there were hiccups and frustrations when they, w- among the engineers and the astronauts that they worked with. But I would say the the worst was probably the press that they dealt with. I have to apologize for the press who came before me because <laughs> they just they they just could not wrap their heads around men and women working in space together. I mean, the Johnny Carson jokes that I included in the book are just awful, so cringy. Mm-hmm. And just the questions that they asked the women were were awful. And like it did get better as each of them flew. But, you know, Judy was asked about her hair during her press conference. Anna was asked if being a mother was compatible with an astronaut's duties, you know, and she's surrounded by men who all have children, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, you know, it's just it was that was the part where I'm like, wow, I'm embarrassed for the ancestors <laughs> that I have. Yeah, for sure. But hey, you can you can make a better legacy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least your questions will be better. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, it's Corinne. Moya is checking out if anyone will let her run a mission real quick, and it gives me time to thank our patrons who support this show every single month. So thank you as always to our Sunlike stars, Lissa and Peyton. I hope you are having an amazing day. And you can support us, hear your name on this podcast, and make it to our patron star chart all by supporting us on Patreon for just about a dollar per episode. If you sign up for an annual membership, you get 13% off, 1% for every constellation in the Zodiac pretty good. Find the star chart, Patreon info, and more at our website, palebluepod.com, or by going right to patreon.com slash palebluepod. And if you can't support us financially, that's fine. We love you. You are still space. Another great way to support us is to share the show with your friends and leave us a rating and review. And I'd like to recommend a multitude show for everyone out there who likes to play or watch games. It's called Games and Feelings. Games and Feelings is an advice podcast about games. Join question keeper Eric Silver, permanent guest Jasper Cartwright, and various multitude folks as they recommend games, answer advice questions, and play whatever quizzes Eric comes up with. They cover every single type of game, video games, tabletop games, party games, laser tag, escape rooms, D&D podcasts, the companies and workers that make these games, any game-related thing you can think of. Advice questions include, how do I convince people who have only played Monopoly to play the new board game I grabbed? Is an escape room a good third date? Is an escape room a good date? If you like what you hear and want to level up your emotional intelligence stat, subscribe now wherever you get your podcast to Games and Feelings. New episodes every Friday. And finally, cozy season is coming up. We're, we're in it. I have a recommendation for you. Puzzles. You can indulge in the timeless pleasure of assembling Ravensburger's Extraordinary Jigsaw Puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail, bringing you an unparalleled puzzle-solving experience. 
with a rich heritage dating back to 1883, Ravensburger puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight people of all ages. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly, thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. Start small and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. If you're up for the challenge, and I think you are, shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. Okay, back to Mission Control. Oh, I'm curious, I, we talked about the, the tone already, but I'm curious how you kind of balanced that like narrative storytelling tone with a lot of these facts and things that you wanted to include. Yeah, I think my biggest thing was I really wanted to set get a sense of place, you know, when I was mm. writing about it. So I really try. And and one of the best advice I got when I started the book was to actually treat it like a screenplay. You know, Ooh, um, that is good advice. Was, yeah. I did feel that. Yeah. I did feel that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I, first of all, do not, I'm not trashing any nonfiction people who've come before me. Uh, this is my first book, and I, you know, I'm sure plenty, there are plenty of critiques, but, um, I, I think it can be easy to just kind of get into that like listing of fact style, and I'm definitely guilty of that sometimes in my own writing. And so I really tried to stick to that advice when I was writing this is to think of the book as a series of scenes and that Mm. you're writing the screenplay and to try and visualize it in your mind. And so that was ultimately how I went about choosing things. But also, like I was saying, some of the scenes are just they were just um, written for me. I um, (laughs) like, for instance, I, I just think the coolest part is Anna's flight her mission was to go save some satellites that had failed when they deployed in orbit. And in just a weird twist of fate, she was on her way to the Today Show to talk about the space shuttle mission that was in orbit at the time that launched those satellites. But she was about she was going to talk about something else. But when the satellites failed, obviously the Today Show wanted to ask her all about those satellites. Yeah. And then they asked her, do you think NASA will go save them? And she's like, I don't think so. (laughs) And then she ends up on the mission that, you know, is sent to go save the satellite. So it's just, I, there are little things like that throughout the book where you're just like, Whoa, that that's an amazing twist of fate that I, and it was just so fun to write when those things happen because it was really quite easy to just kind of lay it down on the page. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Have you incorporated any of that like scene first approach in your journalism sense? Um, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I should, I definitely, I feel a a good anecdotal lead is just kind of my favorite thing to sink my teeth into. So, but I need to be writing more features. Those are more kind of conducive to feature writing. So you're inspiring me to, I haven't been good (laughs) about that. I've been writing a book. <laughs> yeah, no, it really, I mean, we've talked about this. My husband's writing a book too. And I'm, he's like, oh my God, I haven't like published like this, this, and this yet. And I'm like, who cares? Yeah. yeah. You're writing a book. Like, don't worry about it. Yeah. Give yourself so much grace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> During yeah. this period. It's, it's a lot. 
Um, you were talking earlier about being able to uh, bounce back and forth between their stories because they're all so interesting. And I'm wondering if that's how you wrote it uh, or if you like wrote Anna's story and then wrote Judy's or, or something. Because when you're reading it, it goes back and forth chronologically in a really mm-hmm. interesting way that manages to avoid being confusing. So congrats. Oh, um, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. No. And that's always been kind of my writing style. I... I've never really actually fancied myself a writer. Like, I always think of myself as kind of a more logical person first, but I kind of approach my writing in that way. I think of my work as a puzzle. And so I'm all about outlining and structure. And so, yes, if sometimes if the moment comes to me where I'm like, oh, I know what to do for this section, it might be three quarters of the way through the book but I'll write that down and then I'll come revisit it later. So mm. I'm very happy to hear that you followed along well because I've always been <laughs> c- concerned about that. But but you're right. All of this was kind of happening around the same time. The book is really only set primarily in what, seven through 78 through um, 85 and 86. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very short amount of time. And so a lot of the things that the women were going through were all happening kind of simultaneously or with the backdrop of someone else's flight going on. But I found that interesting. It kind of reminded me like of a Pulp Fiction type story in a way or, Ooh. you know, or that, that kind of narrative interweaving structure. Because, you know, like, for instance, Judy's abort, you're very invested in that when it's happening with Judy not realizing that it's having an outsized impact on Ray at the same time. So mm-hmm. I, I just found that to be kind of fascinating. And it's always nice to yeah. see that reality doesn't happen like a domino effect. Like everything is happening at once. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you don't get to just wait for your turn. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that so annoying? Or yeah. actually, maybe I don't. Maybe I do want it to happen all <laughs> <laughs> Everything everywhere all at once. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a favorite of the six or do you? Oh, well, I want to know if you have a favorite of the six and then also like your favorite um, part to write. Great question. I will withhold my favorite of the six. (laughs) Um, We can all guess. Yes, you can guess. Um, (laughs) I did really enjoy writing about Judy's abort. That's one of those things. Oh, there's a term for it's like a flashbulb memory or whatever, because it it was such a a scary moment for everyone that they all remembered it very vividly. Mm -hmm. And so that one I felt as if I really was transported back to when that happened. And then I also really enjoyed, I really enjoyed writing about the competition, like George picking Sally. Um, And then also Anna, when she was trying to see her daughter before her flight really touched me. I thought that was such a, a beautiful moment. And I loved the fact that she had to do it twice. <laughs> there was she had this beautiful moment. She's like, I saw my daughter and I was ready to go. And then they scrubbed the flight yeah. and had, she had to do it all over again the next day. <laughs> That's how it that happens. So yeah. <laughs> I think emotionally for me as a like outside of the book, as a regular person, I ha- I'll like have a moment like that. And then if I have to do it again, it's like meaningless to me. Yeah. It's like, oh, I didn't need that and I don't need it again. <laughs> right. Like, we already did this. We don't yeah, have to I did cry the high anymore. and the low. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> Oh, another thing I'll say I did enjoy writing was I did have sections where I took a beat and just kind of explained what was happening to each of the six of them during a, a moment. And that I I really enjoyed because it was it was just kind of like a snapshot of everybody. Everybody had a memory of what, what they were doing during a certain point of time. And so that was when I felt like they were the closest together because it was mm-hmm. it was just like, oh, here's this one 
event that ties everyone and it, it made them felt like a cohesive group in that moment. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like a lot of their work can be independent. And I think I had the same thought going into it that you had mentioned earlier of like, these are best friends. Yes. Like they're, you're going to see the six women in a row walking down the hallway, like in slow motion. And that's what this is. <laughs> and like, I've not been best friends with like my female colleagues in the past. Like that's totally normal. Right. Exactly. Right. But it was fun learning of who was closer to others. You yes. Know, Sally and Judy were close. Anna and Ray were close because they were both doctors and they were both married to astronauts. You know, it just made mm. sense. Um, but, you know, Sally and Kathy flew together, so they were they grew close that way. You know, it's silly to think that it would be any other way. But, you know, you yeah. kind of have to have that moment where you're like, ah, yes, women are, are unique and different. And we all have yeah. <laughs> our own dreams and ambitions. <laughs> I don't think it's silly. You know, one thing that I learned from your book was that the women weren't allowed to fly with each other during training. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were they weren't allowed to spend that type of quality time together. And you, you said in your book that that's one of the things that made it so they got closer to some of the other men yeah, in their right. astronaut class. Um, and I think that there are definitely systemic things oh, yeah. uh, that NASA did that prevented them from forming those close types of bonds. Um, you know, all of the, you've, you've called it a competition, like breeding mm-hmm. that type of competition among them probably didn't help. No, definitely. And also, I talk about this, too, and they're very adamant when they came in about not being considered like the girl astronaut, the woman astronaut. They Mm -hmm. very much they probably scoff at the title, but, (laughs) you know, um, they were they wanted to be seen as one of the guys. And I definitely appreciate that sentiment. But I think things have definitely evolved for us now where it's like, we also want to be treated equally, absolutely. But that we have kind of evolved in our way of thinking where it's like, oh, but we also celebrate what makes us different as women. Mm -hmm. But they had to kind of back then that wasn't really a luxury for them. They had to, they had to very much be like, hey, we're not different in any possible way. We are the same. Yeah. And it's also an era across the board in like, the aerospace industry or not that was like there's room for only a few of us mm-hmm. so it's just way different than stuff now yeah no well, i wish it were more different <laughs> Same. <laughs> I'm being not, honest. we're not cured <laughs> yeah right? yeah we're not cured we're definitely not there yet for sure <laughs> yeah. lauren i'm i'm curious how you hope people respond to this book and how do you want people to engage with it do you want them to get really angry and put the book down a lot? Like I <laughs> this may sound cheesy, but I truthfully just want people to learn about these women. And nice. to, I think I went in thinking that it was going to be this one story, you know, of just constant frustration. And the truth is, it's there are moments of frustration for sure, but it's really just more about them and how they navigated their I mean, it's, they were working a job, you know, they were working yeah. a job with a very intense spotlight on them. But I really the parts I enjoyed most were just learning about how they felt about doing that job and, you know, their hopes and dreams. I loved when they got angry. I loved when, you know, they were sad. That's the part that makes me relate. And so I I, I think it, it's just kind of making them human and also I think one thing I'd like for people to take away that I definitely took away 
there's no path to being an astronaut, nor do you need to have things figured out from day one. That's been an issue for me my whole life because I think a lot of people think I knew what I wanted to do when I grew up, and that's definitely not the case. I mean, I grew up with space parents, but as a kid, space was not cool to me. What (laughs) what your parents do was definitely dorky and not not neat. And everyone, kind of, whenever they were going to college or figuring out, you know, post high school, I felt like they just kind of knew what was um, the next step. And I kind of just fell into journalism. And that's when I realized, oh, I like this. And what if I wrote about space? But like, it took me a long time to get there. And I feel like that story is also in the six, too. I mean, some of them, yes, were dreaming of being an astronaut their whole lives, but others didn't even think about it until NASA opened up the selection process. And I also think that is a great lesson for why being inclusive is so important because obviously they didn't think that they could be astronauts until they saw that. So when you open up access to things that we considered too limiting before, you find a whole group of people and you might find your first woman astronaut to go to space because Sally was not one of those people that had a lifelong dream to do it. Yeah. I'm bizarrely, not bizarrely, but like so comforted hearing you say that just as a regular person. I'm like, yeah, I I don't know what I want to do or like (laughs) what I want to keep doing. And I think I growing up thought being an astronaut was something from, you know, childhood that you're training for. I had, I have an ex-boyfriend who was, I remember so clearly when he told me like, no, you would have had to like been doing stuff already if you wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> and it was like the first time someone had kind of said that to me. And like, maybe he was right. I had studied like English and like things are slightly different, but I was like, how dare you say that? Like <laughs> doors are closed. What do you mean? <laughs> but also, I mean, that's all decisions. You know, that's decisions yeah. that NASA makes, right? They don't have to be those decisions. They're just making those decisions because that's how they've designed their vehicles. You know, that's the program they're mm-hmm. running. But there's actually um, a great uh, nonprofit that I think it's a nonprofit that I wrote about um, last year called Astro Access, which is all about trying to send a person with a disability into space. And I I think it's just such a great goal because I also thought, oh, you have to be physically fit and you have to have all these Mm -hmm. different attributes to go to space. But when I was talking to the people in the program and as I've learned through reporting, you know, these are just design decisions. Now, obviously, it might be harder for the engineer to come up with the new spaceship design, but ultimately it makes things safer for everyone because if you're designing for everybody with everyone in mind, then we're going to have less uh, safety issues. A great example was um, an astronaut a few years back had to abort a spacewalk very early because his helmet was filling up with water. Now, obviously, you know, he needed to breathe, but (laughs) <laughs> it was there was the blindness aspect of it. And, yeah. and this has happened to astronauts who have spacewalked before is they can go blind and then they'll have to abort the spacewalk. But if we design for that to happen and for people who have limited vision to fly, those mm-hmm. situations would not be as dangerous as they were in the moment. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And they yep. could even happen. Yeah. Like <laughs> you kind of could ac- accomplish that task of the space off. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I had not heard of Astro Access. That makes so much sense. You should have them on your podcast. Noted. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's not like 
able-bodied people can't then become disabled in space. And on the way back, you're just going to be like, oh, no, sorry, you can't get on the spaceship. Yeah, exactly. What? I mean, that's the whole point of universal design is that if you make it good for the the people on the outskirts of the distribution, then it will Mm -hmm. be good for everyone. Absolutely. And there's even, I even talked about it in the book too, um, when it came to the spacesuits, right? So Anna was very instrumental in the mm. early days of the spacesuit design because they were hoping to make an extra small, a small and an extra small upper torso, which is the, um, I, I've heard it referred to as like a Mr. Potato Head, you know, you stick in the, <laughs> the arms and the legs of the spacesuit, but this, it's the size of the torso that, you know, fits your body. And they ended up abandoning creating the extra small. And that kind of came full circle in a way when a few years back when Mm -hmm. NASA was trying to perform the first all-female spacewalk and they realized they didn't have proper suit sizing, one of the women bowed out because she just didn't feel comfortable in the suit that she was in. And while it's not because they... The the reason they, they rescheduled it was not because there was no extra small, but it did kind of shine a light on those decisions that were made many, many years ago. And that that is kind of having those like repercussions into today is that, oh, well, we didn't prioritize these types of upper torsos. Therefore, we don't have proper sizing for everybody when they need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that so clearly. I don't know if we were doing our show at that point. Uh, I think we were. I think actually I think we yeah, that were. was 2019. Wasn't that um, the PR nightmare or no, no, no. Yes. Yeah, there that was we, the impetus for the PR nightmare segment. When yeah. we did PR nightmare. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I can't believe I'm admitting this. Uh, I thought it was a safe space in the the hole of caveat. Um, no, so yeah, whenever we did PR Nightmare, we'd always tie it to real world current events. And mm-hmm. one of them was the canceling of the all-female spacewalk. And then another one was the hole that, that was drilled into the soil yes. that leaked. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was still... I have not kept up with the news. Was that resolved? Who did that? Um, not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> they like kind of mentioned that it was a manufacturing thing. I think they did it, but they did. They simply brought the Soyuz down and then they just never talked about it again. That's so funny. Now we've been having Soyuz leaks for another reason, but they're saying it's micrometeoroid debris. So I don't know, but I don't we'll see. A lot of people don't actually uh, believe that. <laughs> yeah. Well, in our show, we did train quite a number of people to plug holes in a cardboard yes, board. Right. So we can deploy those, those people at any I'm, time if NASA needs help. I'm sure those skills are super Super helpful, so space. valuable. That... <laughs> That segment was so silly. I remember like prepping the little bags of like materials that the contestants could use to plug their cardboard with and never ever was I giving them the right things. It was <laughs> pieces of paper, random things of Play-Doh. Like, Thank you. <laughs> and I'm sure NASA's doing it way better than that. <laughs> no, it's just fix it with what you have in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I think that they need to launch something. Yeah, uh, we're supposed soon. to leave the so, mission control. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Lauren, if there's any last messages you had about the six, any any last calls to action, uh, now is the time. Well, I think the story is, you know, more relevant than ever right now. We're trying to correct, you know, decades of mistakes <laughs> by sending the first woman and the first person of color to the moon through NASA's Artemis program. 
And um, just this April, um, NASA assigned Victor Glover and Christina Cook to Artemis II, which is going to send them to deep space and around the moon. And so they will be the first woman and the first person of color to go to deep space. Um, that's not happening until next year, but, um, <laughs> you know, plenty of time to get amped about yeah. it for sure. Nice. And, um, you know, uh, like I said in the book, you know, soon we're going to learn who those people are that will walk on the moon and hopefully thanks to the six, they'll have an infinitely easier time with the world and the press. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hope so too. That's so exciting. Um, and real quick, what? how can people find you? Where are you online? Sure. So um, I'm a staff writer for Bloomberg, so you can find my articles there. Um, I'm also Grush Crush on Instagram. You know, I probably should have had a more professional Instagram <laughs> handle, but nope. can't give no. it up now. Uh, mm -mm. Too That's too good. <laughs> the sunk cost too good. is too great. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm also Lauren Grush on ex formerly known as twitter <laughs> um but i just lost tweet deck access so i'm um, kind of yeah i'm like floundering there these days so i'm yeah. i'm reinventing my social presence uh and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll let you know how I that think goes we all are. <laughs> yeah it's a time of we'll tag you. yeah <laughs> i guess i'm also on threads i'm not sure if i'm grush crush or lauren grush you can find me either <laughs> yeah I, it's funny, I downloaded Threads immediately, never opened it, forgot yes. it is there. And I, I think that went, is the case for everyone. It's just, I'm such a desktop person. And if it's yeah. on my phone, I just don't think to go there. So I know I'm, that probably labels me like extra millennial, but uh, it's the truth. <laughs> no, I'm so much more willing to like take action on something on my desktop. Yeah. Like even I don't have my texts on my desktop anymore. Mm -hmm. And then a text will come in on my phone and I'm like, reading it and not doing anything about it <laughs> like oh if this is i'm not in work mode yeah yeah um well this is so great i'm so glad we got our gang back together yes. for this oh my gosh so lovely space the great unifier yeah really because <laughs> exactly we'll, we'll all die in it you know <laughs> and you're so right maybe that should be the tagline for the pod <laughs> space we're all gonna die in it yeah yeah a podcast dedicated to making space less scary <laughs> will just make it way more intimidating <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you listeners can buy the six wherever books are sold. If you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, it's still a pre-order. But if it's any other day, go out and get it. Um, the six by Lauren Grush. And we'll see you soon. And remember, you are space. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.